Would you pray with me as we begin? No, I need it. Father, we gather in the name of Jesus, and I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart would be truly pleasing in your sight, that your words would be my words, that you would teach us in this time, that you would minister to us, that you would push your word from our head into our hearts, that you would grow our hearts and our understanding of who you are, that you would continue to draw us into yourself, revealing the truth about yourself. God, we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jill men- mentioned our, that you know, today is Pentecost, and it makes, makes sense that on Pentecost we would talk about God the Father and not God the Holy Spirit. And it would make sense because that would be, I believe, what God the Holy Spirit would want us to do. You know, he was all about bringing glory to the Father and all about bringing glory to the Son. He came from the Father and the Son, and his whole intent was to make them known, to teach us the things about God. And so Paul says that we wouldn't know these spiritual things about God if we didn't have the Spirit. And so since we have the Spirit, I believe the Spirit would want us, like Oya did that, to talk about God the Father today. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about God the Father using this creed because that's the order of the creed. And if we're nothing, we're orderly. And so we want to do that this morning as we speak about this first part of this creed, uh, of the Apostles' Creed. But before we do that, I want to share with you a story. Uh, I don't know if you guys know who this man is, named Charles Spurgeon. And Charles Spurgeon was a preacher in uh, 19th century and in England. And uh, he was a young man when he became a preacher. And he was world-renowned at that area. Actually, you could call Charles Spurgeon the first pastor of a mega church, right? The church that he served at in England sat 6,000 people. It was the largest Protestant congregation in the world at the time, and people from everywhere came to hear him preach. And it was on January the 7th, 1855, that he began his sermon that day with these words, and I'd like to share those with you this morning. He begins by saying, It has been said that the proper study of mankind is man. I will not oppose the idea, but I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls Father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around this narrow globe. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnifying the soul of a man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. What a beautiful picture and reason why we, the elect, the children of God, the church, should spend our lives getting to know God. But now remember, Charles Spurgeon is a preacher, 
And sometimes preachers can take concise statements and expound upon them and make them great statements. Right Today, about 175 years later, a current philosopher and apologist and, and systematician sort of like consolidates all these thoughts into one sentence. And Dr. William Lane Craig says this. He says, the knowledge of God ought to be our number one priority in life. He's summarizing all of what Charles Spurgeon says into this one concise statement. And, and I don't know about you, but I sort of like love the beauty and the picture that, that Spurgeon preaches and gives us about God. And not just why, what it is, but why we should seek after him. But see, there's a limitation and there, there's a, there's a, that we should catch here, right? Because it's one thing to know about God. And it's quite another thing to know God. See, it, it, to, to know about God, it's, it's really simply a matter of information. But to know God requires a personal experience and involvement. It requires more than just information. Right? It requires a relationship. Which is why Jesus said this, I believe, in John 17, where the night that he was betrayed, he says, now this is eternal life, that they know you. Not that they know about you, but they do know about you, but they know you. The Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The reason he came was to make God known. They all knew things about him, but they didn't know him. They had wandered from who he was. And so Jesus came to reveal the Father to us so that we could have a relationship with the Father. But that doesn't mean that knowing things about God is unimportant. Because knowing things like God is omnipotent, that he's all-powerful, that he's all-knowing, that he's ever-present, that he is just and kind and merciful and that he is preeminent, that he is uncreated, that he is merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love. All of those things are things about God that we read in Scripture, and all of those things draw us to him. Think about it like this. Say you're single. Just imagine that for a minute. And one of your friends sets you up on a blind date, and, and, and they say, oh, I've got this person you need to meet. You need to go out with this person, right? What's the first thing you want to know? Well, tell me something about them. Because I'm not just going to take your word for it. Tell me something about them. And they describe these characteristics about this person, right? And, and then as they describe them and there are things that you find attractive, there are things that you find like, yeah, I want to know this person, right? Then you're like, yes, I want to know them, right? And I, I want to know these things. They're important to know whether or not I want to meet this person or not. If they've got only one tooth in the middle of their mouth, Maybe not, but if there's things about this person I really want to know, then it will draw me to this person. The same thing is true about Scripture. It's an invitation to know a person. See, the Bible is not this systematic book of theology. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a list of rules. Although there are rules, there is theology within it. That is not what it is. Primarily, it is a story about God acting in history in reality. And these things that God has done and the things that we are revealed about him in this text draw us into him 
And it's when we come to him that we experience these things as true, as trustworthy. And so today we want to look at a concise statement, a really concise statement that I believe, and and just I'm adding to voices, that see this Apostles' Creed as this concise statement of who God is, what he is about, but not just what he's about, but what he is up to. And the things that he is working at in his creation in in real time. And so we want to look at this Apostles' Creed this morning to better understand who God is. And the hope is that as we come to better know who he is, that those things will draw us to him. And so this series is an invitation to every single one of us to get to know God better. And so that's what we want to do. And this Apostles' Creed is one that is an invitation. It's a confession. It's a profession that says, this is what we believe about God. But it's also an invitation for us to keep exploring who God is. Because while it's concise, it cannot contain all that God is. Even the scriptures do not contain all that God is. And this Apostles' Creed, this word apostle means basically someone who's an ambassador, an envoy, someone who is sent to proclaim the gospel. And a creed is just a concise, formal, informative statement, authoritative statement about religious beliefs. And so this Apostles' Creed is an informative but also authoritative belief, a confession about what we believe about God. We ourselves are sent to proclaim the good news. This is our creed. As we go to proclaim this truth about God to the world, and it's a concise understanding of who he is and what's he, what he's about, but it's also an invitation. It's a creed that dates back to the 3rd and 4th century. But it's also believed that it actually gets its origins earlier than that from an old Roman creed that we don't have, but it's talked about from like the 2nd century. And some believe it really originates more in like what we see Paul talk about in the 1st century in, in 1 Corinthians 15. There's this formula speaking about who God is, responding, asking and answering questions of the time. And so this is still an appropriate creed for us today to see this truth about God, who he is, and it's an invitation that draws us to him. And so what better way to start this series and actually recite these words that we recite from time to time? We don't just recite them, we actually sing them. If, if you can remember, we actually sing the words to this creed, but we also use this creed in baptism services and, and to profess our faith. So together, if you would, Recite this creed with me. Now, I know some of you have it memorized, but for those of us who don't, we're going to read it from the screen. So if you would, recite this with me. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell, On the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may have noticed, and maybe some of you were taught this in what we call confirmation class, that there are really three sections to this creed. 
and we call them articles. Some people call them articles. And, and there are three, speaking of the three persons of the Trinity. We confess in this creed that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that first article, that first section of the scripture is what we want to turn to today to understand what is being said in this ancient creed and, and how it invites us into this relationship with God. And so we want to turn to that first article that says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And I want to stop with those first two words, I. While this is a creed we say together, this is a creed, this is a personal creed that I confess. I believe. Right? And so when I say that, I, I, I learn and continue to learn over my life more and more what that means. Not that I have a full understanding of that today, as hopefully we'll see, but there's more and more that I can learn about this God. And so the second word there is a big word. It's believe, which isn't just I know, right? But it's I believe. Actually, I would put my life in his hands. I, I trust him with my life, so much so that I'll do what he asked me to do. That's what it means by believe. But if we're honest, right, we don't always put our life in his hands, right? We kind of keep one cheek on the stool and one cheek off the stool just in case I find a better way, right? Which is why this is an invitation to know him better, because the more we know him, the more we'll trust him. The more we'll put our life in his hands, the more faith, the more belief we'll have in his, his rule in our life of him being who he says he is, and by actually putting ourselves in his hands. So this is a personal confession of faith about what you believe about God. And hopefully over your life that will grow, as will your belief in him will grow. But then this other word, you believe in God. And that word there is, is a big word, meaning that which God? Right? If you just stop right there, I believe in God. There are other people, other religions in the world that profess the same thing. I believe in God. And then the question should be, well, which God? Right? And, and that's a whole other loaded question. But we wanted to say about which God this is and, and what God this is. And to understand that, I think we have to understand the word God as it's spoken in Scripture. And there's a Great verse for us to look at what it means when we say God. Because God usually is spoken of as a title, not a person. But we know from our scripture that God is a person. And so who is this God? And we only need to look at the very first verse in scripture that tells us that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And to understand what that means... Again, we have to like, you know, look back and say, what, what, what is being written there? What is being said there? And the word that's being used there is this Hebrew word, Elohim. El being the Hebrew word for God. Ohim, speaking of God of immense, intense glory. And that word glory means weight, weighty. And in the, used in terms of God, it is the most weightiest thing. It is the heaviest thing. But also with this word is might, right? And also 
is spirit. Because you'll see Elohim used in terms of spirit elsewhere in Scripture. But when used in talking about God, it is talking about God being spirit. Jesus himself said to the woman at the well, God is spirit. And he desires those who worship him to worship him in spirit and in truth. God is spirit. And that's exactly what we're being told here, the very first part of Genesis. God is spirit, but he's not just this light, fluffy spirit. He's the weightiest thing. He's the heaviest thing. And where do we see that? In his creation, right? It's, it's the words, it's, it's the thought of this being that creates everything that we see and some things that we have yet to see. This spirit is the heaviest thing, is what we're told about God, and he is the most intense, immense, glorious being ever. That's what we say when I believe in this God, the one who has created everything. When he comes to earth in Scripture, what happens? The earth shakes because something bigger is here. Something heavier is here. Timothy Keller said, when, when God comes into your life, you have this earth, this self-quake, right? There's this realization that something heavier is here. It moves you. If God doesn't move you, then God is lighter than you. You have not come to know his glory as he desires for you to know his glory. Not just about, but experience his glory. So God is the God of everything, the, the creator of everything. But he's, again, he's more than that. Right? He's not just Elohim, the creator of everything. Right? He is the Father Almighty. As in the text says, the Almighty Father. And that word almighty there is the Hebrew word Shaddai, right? Meaning the all-sufficient one. The one who doesn't require anything else to exist. The uncreated one, the eternal one, the one who is ruler over everything. Because he's not dependent upon anything. That is who the almighty is. In fact, you would, you would see him speak to Abraham in Genesis 17 where he says, I am the God Almighty. Referencing back to the beginning. That's who he is. He is eternal. He always is, not dependent upon anything. He is all sovereign. That is who the Almighty is. And God uses these words in Scripture to tell us about himself, but no single word or a combination of all the words can begin to express to us the fullness that is God. He is beyond describing from our perspective, but he has given us these words to give us enough information so that we can trust in him, so that we can come to know him. And we see in the very first part of Scripture and in this creed, that he is God, the one who has created everything, the one who is mighty and glorious and powerful and not dependent upon anything but eternal. And some have thought then that, that he is this God that has created this watch and wound it and stood back and watched everything go. But in this confession, in this creed, we say, no, he's more than that. Yes, he is all those things. He has created everything, but he's more. Right? He is Father. 
which means he's not only powerful and mighty and eternal, but he's personal. And, and we can know him as a child knows their father. In fact, in Genesis, he's, he says this. He says, then God said, let us make man in our image. And we see that, and, and as Jesus comes, the Spirit reveals to us what is being said there. He says, let us, who is he speaking to? Make man in our image. Who is he speaking to? We believe that God is in community before the existence of the world, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in a perfect community. And he says, let us make man in our image. So he's not only the creator of everything we see, he's my creator. He made me. And not only that, he made me in his image. Right? And so when I see his attributes, when I learn of him, it draws me to him because something inside of me misses that. He is my father, and he cares for me, and I can know him. But the word father in this creed and in Scripture means more than that. It also means first. It also means principle. In the Godhead, we see this order. We see Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We speak of them as the first person, second person, third person of the Trinity. But here, don't get the idea that there's a superiority here, that one is greater than the other. It's really an understanding of, of the, the, the being sent, the, the, the knowing the Son is sent from the Father, and with the Father and the Son, they send the Spirit. There's an order in the sending in, in, in creation. It's how they are made known. And God is the principle. No one has sent him, but he sends the Son, and he and the Son send the Spirit. He is Father. He is first. He is principle. And we should know him as first, as Father, as principle, as everything is described so far. But it's not just us who are called to see him as Father or to call him Father. We see Jesus all over the New Testament confessing him to be Father. In Mark, he records these words of Jesus the night that he was betrayed, saying, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. This, take this cup from me, not, yet not my will. Not what I want, but what you will, what you want be done. These two words there are really this Aramaic transliteration of the Greek, meaning Abba, Father, meaning Father, Father. But this Aramaic word is this imperson like a personal address. It's an informal address, as a child would say to their own father. Sort of like a child, a small child, saying to their father as Daddy or Papa. Right? That's what Jesus is saying. And 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 He's calling us to see him as the same way. Why? Because he cares that much for us. But I didn't realize until this week, until somebody else pointed out, that Jesus isn't the only one that calls God the Father Abba. Right? We see the Spirit recognizes him as Father. God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. The Spirit calls God the Father, Papa. There's this relationship, and, and God invites us as he reveals himself to who he is 
into this personal relationship to see him as someone who cares for us, someone who really wants what's best for us. And he desires us to know that, not just to know about that, but to know that and calls us into this relationship. But then this creed goes on to say, not only that, he is the maker of heaven and earth. And it sounds redundant, but I don't believe it is. It's, there's a bit of redundancy, but the maker sort of gives us this understanding that he, knitted, he put everything together. He made it, right? And he knows how it works. He made you, and he knows everything there is to know about you. And we read in Scripture, that means more. We see Jesus in the picture of the writer of Hebrews saying this, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by, the power, by his powerful word. Not only did he make everything, but he sustains it. We would not be alive today. This universe would not exist if God was not sustaining it, if he were not keeping it going. Right? We've lost sight of that. We've lost sight of the fact that we breathe and live because he says so. And because he is here maintaining it. You know, when you think about the vastness of the universe, when you think about how big everything is, yet God is greater than that. And we on this planet are about like this big. I mean, I've got my fingers pressed so hard together, but yet I'm told there's a space between them. Yet this universe is so much bigger than this. And yet God is so much bigger than that, right? But we think we can figure it out. But it's God that sustains everything. No amount of things that we devise, we create, can begin to sustain, let alone our lives, but this universe. It is God who sustains it. And maybe some of you are thinking, well, he's not doing a very good job, right? Because it's dying along with me, right? My body is evidence of that. So what is he up to? Well, Scripture also reveals to us the cause of that is not God. The cause of that is you and I. We are the reason everything is decaying, why everything is dying. But yet, Scripture also reveals to us why that's important. Because when things are dying, when things are breaking down, and we get to a point where we can't fix it, what do we do? Well, if we're smart, we look for someone who can. Right? My dryer broke down. I can't fix it. I can pretend like I can fix it and make things worse, or I can call someone who can. And, and in seeing everything breaking down and seeing everything decaying, we think that we can fix this universe by hopping planets? Not that we shouldn't do that, but that is not going to fix this problem. Because science tells us in the end, everything goes away. Everything is dying. We need somebody from the outside, someone who's powerful enough to fix things. And that's what a decaying world, a dying body reminds us of, that we are powerless to fix this problem, that we need someone who can. 
That's what we should be reminded of. And we say thanks be to God that he sent his son into the world to fix that problem and to make the truth about his father known. That we would know that everything that we see is not happening outside of the one who sees everything, from the one who's designed everything, the one who has created everything, sees it, and he's had a plan to make his son the sacrifice for our life, to make his son the one who comes in and actually makes it possible for us to be back in the relationship with God our Father from the very beginning, something we couldn't do. He sends his son into the world to do because he loves us, and he wants us to be in that relationship that he originally created us to be in, not just for a time being, not just for a few short years, but for eternity. This creed reminds us that we have a God who is bigger than we can imagine, a God who is all-powerful and and has created everything by the power of his word, but a God who is personal and can be known, a God who loves you so much that he sent his one and only son to die for each of you so that we could know him, that we could know that, that he is a God who can be trusted, a God who I can place my life in his hands and to follow and to love and to know as Papa or to know as Daddy. He is our Father. Luke, the writer of Acts, summarizes, I think, this first article who says, from one man, he, God, made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring, which means we, he is our father. Why are things the way they are? So that we would seek after him. That we would not think ourselves all-sufficient. That we would not think ourselves as all-powerful. That we would not think of ourselves as glorious. But as loved by the one true God, the Father of all things. As I said at the beginning, this series is an invitation into a relationship with a person. And we together can share information about God with one another. We can teach one another things about God, which are good things. But our ability is limited when it comes to helping one another know God. Knowing God requires me to do the knowing. Requires me to enter into a relationship with God. It requires me to put my life in his hands, to experience the love that he has for me. This series is an invitation to a person. It's an invitation to be still. It's an invitation to slow down. As we look in this creed, as we see the complexity and the simplicity, we're reminded that we miss it because we're going too fast, folks. Every day we walk amongst his creation, a creation that just speaks of his majesty. 
And we see it when we slow down. And so I, I want to just encourage you through this series and, and really the rest. Slow down. Let us slow down to see the majesty of God, to see God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Would you pray with me?